Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, as we look at this passage of scripture from the letter Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, we ask you for your help. We ask you, God, that you would strengthen us, that you would pour your spirit out upon us, that you, God, would open our eyes, that we might behold your glory once again. Lord, we ask you that you would open our ears, that we might hear your word, and that, God, you might open our hearts, that we might believe. Because, Lord, we know that in believing, it translates to the work of our hands, and the work of our hands translates to people all around this city knowing your goodness and your love. And so that's our prayer today. Would you help us as we look at this passage to take it and apply it in our lives so that you might be known, that we might see many, many come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, next week we are beginning a very lengthy series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in there for a long time, but today we're just taking some time in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 to talk about a biblical vision of the church. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at who we are, we're going to look at what we do, and we're going to look at why it matters. Very simple. Who we are, what we do, and why it matters. I want to talk about who we are because it's, it's vital that we actually have not, not a, a disparate kind of weird, maybe jacked up vision of the church, that we actually have a biblical vision of the church because it's who we are. I want to start there. And we'll go to what we do and then why it matters. So who we are. Okay? The church is not a building that we meet in. Doesn't matter what dictionary you use, it doesn't matter where you go for a definition, I guarantee you when you look up the word church, the first definition on there is going to be a building used for Christian worship. But it's wrong. Every dictionary that we have is wrong. The church is not a building. That's why we're careful with the language that we use as a church. The words that we use matter because language creates culture and I want us to have a biblically informed view of the church and a culture of church that, that displays the truth of God's word and the reality of God's kingdom. It's vital for us to see this. We don't have a church. We are the church. We happen to have a building. We don't do church services. We gather as the church. Church isn't something we do. Church is something we are. You don't attend church. You are the church. See, the church is not a vending machine for religious goods and services for the consumer market. Church is actually the community where you are equipped and resourced to bring your gifts as a contributor, not as a consumer. So when you understand the church from a biblical perspective... You understand it's not about a couple of hours a week of passive observation. It's actually about your 24-7 life of active participation in the kingdom of God. So if the church is not a building, 
The church is not a vending machine of religious goods and services for the consumer markets. Then what is the church? Let me give you my definition. This is how I answer when people ask me the question, what is the church? The church are the people of God who are called to God by grace through faith in Jesus and who are then sent by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to make the fame and deeds of God known. Let me say it again because it's important. The church are the people of God who are called to God by grace through faith in Christ and who are then sent by God in the power of the Holy Spirit to make the fame and deeds of God known. We don't go to church. We are the church. We don't have Sunday services at the church. We gather together in this building on Sundays as the church. You don't attend church. You are the church. We are Christ city. And this matters for our identity. This is part of our identity. This is who we are. We're going to look at what we do and we're going to look at why it matters. But we must understand first who we are. And that's why we're in Ephesians chapter 4 today. I want to read it again to you. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. You've heard it read once. Let me read it again. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want you to see that that it begins here with the word therefore in verse 1. Therefore, is always a very important word when we are reading the Bible. Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, is getting at something here when he says, therefore. He is urging them to live a life worthy of the gospel. The therefore is pointing back to what he has already said in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's just spent three chapters explaining that the people of God he is writing to were once strangers to the promises of God. I'm not going to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 because I don't have time. You don't let me preach that long. But I want to read it to you because it's absolutely vital that we come to understand this. Paul is, is writing this letter to this church. And he says, don't you forget that you were at one point strangers to the promises of God. You had no hope. You were separated from God. He says, remember, because of God's grace, by way of his sovereign plan from before the foundations of the earth, by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, you as a community who were once far off have now come near. You've come into relationship with God, but you've also come into relationship with one another. And he says to them in verses, uh, in chapter two particularly, but all the way through chapter one, two, and three, he says that they have been knit together as a community by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, he's just spent three chapters trying to explain to them the glories of Jesus and his redemptive work in the gospel. He has just spent three chapters just trying to give them a glimpse of the magnificence and sufficiency of Jesus' work on their behalf and how God has chosen them as his own and how they were dead in their sins and trespasses, but now they are alive in Christ. He has just spent three chapters stirring up worshipful awe within the community, in the hearts of the Ephesian church as they behold the mystery of the gospel. And then, and then we get a therefore. Therefore, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul the Apostle, he says, therefore, because of everything I've already said in chapter one and two and three of the letter that I'm writing to you, therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of the majesty of God's grace in the gospel. He says, therefore, because God has saved you, I urge you to walk in humility and gentleness. Therefore, because of who God is, I urge you to walk with patience, bearing with one another in love. He says, therefore, because of everything I've already said, I urge you to walk in unity with one another because the unity that you have is a unity that can only come by the Holy Spirit. So Christ, did he hear me? I want you to hear this is so vital for us as followers of Jesus. I want you to hear me that you know that the commands of God, of the commands of the gospel here only and always come after the provision of the gospel. That's why the therefore matters. He says, therefore do this because of this. He says, I'm going to tell you about the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore now, here's how we're going to live. You don't move on to what we do until you already understand in every fiber of your being who we already are in Christ. You don't move on to what you do until you understand who you are. We don't talk about what we do until we comprehend the beauty of the gospel that tells us what has already been done, which then leads us to understand who we already are. See, that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a member of Jesus' church is to become who you already are. And that's why the therefore in our text is so important. God never commands us to obey something without empowering us to do so as we depend upon him. Let me say it again. God never commands us to do something without empowering us to do so in as much as we will depend upon him. So if we try and walk worthy of God, apart from the gospel, we'll fail. If we try and walk in humility and gentleness apart from the gospel, it is in vain. If we try and walk in patience and love toward others apart from the gospel, we will fall short. If we try and manufacture unity apart from the indwelling power and presence of God the Holy Spirit, we will fail. We cannot manufacture that which only the Holy Spirit can produce in and through the gospel. It will not work. Just look around the room for a moment. I know you're all feeling awkward. Do it anyways. Just look around the room. Look at the faces of the people seated around you. 
within our community of Christ City, we have people from every inhabited continent on the globe. If you have been born in Antarctica, let me know so I can say seven out of seven. <laughs> we have people from all over the world. Some of you grew up in the church. Some of us did not grow up in the church. Some of you were raised Hindu. Some of you were raised Buddhist. Some of us were raised in rural Alberta. That's just in this room right now. That's just who will come and worship today here. Think about the city around you. Vancouver is the third most diverse city in North America. It's the fourth most diverse city in the world. And this is where we get to be the church. I think about this when I prayer walk our neighborhood. I look at the front door of every home as I walk down the street. I look at the front doors of the apartment buildings where I know dozens of people come and go every single day. And when I look at the doors of the homes and I look at the doors of the apartment buildings and I look up at the balconies and I see the windows, I know that each window and door and balcony represents someone who has a unique story. Think of how many thousand unique and diverse stories are represented within half an hour walk in any direction from this building. Think about wherever you live, how many unique and diverse stories there are from the front door where you walk out of your home and you stand there and you look. Thousands of unique and diverse stories all around you. And in the church, these diverse backgrounds and worldviews and cultures, these unique stories, they can be perceived as a problem or a challenge or they can be reimagined as a sign of the power of God to unite us together in spite of our differences. But you need to decide how you see the diversity of the community we live in and the community we are. You have to decide. Is it a problem or a challenge or is it a sign of the beauty and the sufficiency of God's work to unite us together in spite of our differences? I want to convince you that the unity of the church in the midst of the diversity of all of our backgrounds is one of the key signs to the watching world around us that the Christian worldview is true, that God is who he says he is and that knowing him is the only real way to answer the fragmented and broken world of hostility and pain that we're experiencing right now. These diverse backgrounds and worldviews and cultures, these unique stories represented by every door you will walk past, ride past, or drive past on your way from here. Every single one of those diverse challenges were faced by Paul the Apostle when he was doing ministry in Ephesus. He was there for a couple of years. That's why we're looking at this passage today. Because in a broken and fragmented world, we need the unity of the Spirit. See, at the time when Paul wrote this letter, Ephesus was second only to Rome in terms of a major cosmopolitan urban center full of culture and commerce in that part of the world. It was second only to Rome. And the church itself that he is writing this letter to was both multi-ethnic and multicultural in its background. They were a community of people with unique and diverse stories and unique and diverse backgrounds. And they had all been woven together into relationship by the Holy Spirit. And he is telling them that that new community is revealing the beauty of the gospel to the city around them. This is what we have today 
This is who we are, and we need to lean into it. Keep going in the text. It says in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're going to look at these flipping the order. One God and Father of all. One baptism, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one spirit, one body, the church. There's only one God, our Father. Only one. And I know for some of you, the metaphor of God's church as family rubs you the wrong way. Because family was not a place of joy and security for you growing up. But but here's what I want to say. That word is worth redeeming in your life. It's worth redeeming in your life because God is our father. He has revealed himself to us as father. We're adopted as his own and we are knit together with brothers and sisters in a gigantic global family that stretches beyond our current place and time in history. It's worth redeeming. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's who we are because of who he is. It's one baptism. Our baptism is an identification with the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But our baptism is also an identification with all of the rest of the family who have come to believe that. Baptism is our identification, yes, with the finished work of Christ. Baptism is also our identification with the broader global family of the church throughout all of history. Baptism is how we are identified as one body, the church. So there's one God and Father, one baptism, one faith. We are baptized because we have one faith. And that one faith is in one Lord. And it's all grounded in our one hope. And if our hope is not singular, it's a miss. See, there are not many hopes. There's one hope. Nothing and no one other than Jesus is solid enough to bear the weight of our hope for all of the promises of God to come to pass in our life. If the object of our one hope is not our one Lord, then our hope is faulty and indeed idolatrous. We have this great hope in one Lord because of the unifying work of the one Spirit. He's knit us together in one body, the church. And hear me, in all of our diversity, in the midst of all of our different backgrounds and stories, in the midst of every significant thing that would normally keep us apart, God has called us to be one body. In Christ, we are united by something that is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us. 
In Christ, we are united by something that is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us. It's like God has taken each individual story and each individual dream that we may have for our lives, and he's taken those stories and those dreams, and they intersect with the gospel when you have had or are having or will have an encounter with Jesus. And what happens is an encounter with Jesus redefines our stories in such a way that it brings them all together. So all of our individual stories strands of all of our lives and all of our stories become woven together. We're no longer just us as individuals, we're us as a community. The late great Eugene Peterson, he said one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. The church of Jesus is like I said, a bunch of individual strands that then are woven together to produce a beautiful tapestry. And and this is the thing about it. Every individual strand needs the other strand in order to produce the whole piece. So you're not alone, nor can you be. Think of our stories as, as those threads that are woven together And think of the gospel of Jesus as that thread runs through the midst of them all, uniting them all and giving shape and form to the rest. This is what happens when we come together and are united together by the Spirit. This is who we are. Once you understand who we already are, then you'll be free to ask, now what do we do? But you can only ask what we do once you have come to see who we are. Obviously, it's a huge kind of question when you ask what we do. That's who we are. Now let's talk about what we do. It's a huge question. It's an all of life. It's a totally encompassing kind of question. It's not simple. It, it includes every facet of our lives. So what we do becomes very important. I, I could talk about that for a very long time, and I know that you would love that. But we're just going to lock into the text. What does this text tell us about what we do once we understand who we are? What's it telling us? Look at the text again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Just leave the text up there for a second. There are three things in here that I want to highlight. The first, it says in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The second is in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And three, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's look at them each individually. The first one, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This very simply just means that followers of Jesus live a life that conforms to the reality that they have been saved that you have entered into relationship with God, that you've been forgiven your sin, that he is transforming you to become the person he created you to be. Your life lines up with what you believe. Your priorities are shifted to correspond with kingdom values. You take your personal holiness seriously. You actively repent of sin. You actively seek to reconcile broken relationships. You seek to love and serve your literal neighbors because you know who you are. 
There's an old story. It's actually, it comes from a community of people where if you asked one of this community, are you a Christian? Their answer would not be a simple yes or no. Their answer would be, go and ask my neighbor. Are you a Christian? Ask my neighbor. Right? We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The salvation we have been called to. The relationship we have been called to. Are we walking in a manner worthy of that call? That's the question. The second key thing under what we do. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. Let me tell you, if you go to work tomorrow morning and you walk into your office and you sit down and you start your day and your boss walks into your office and your boss comes in and goes, look, I'm going to need you to do this and this and this and get this going and start this project and finish that other project. And you look at him and you go, I am bearing with you. It's not going to be a good day. Right? If you're married, you look at your spouse and you just go, I am bearing with you in love. Okay. It, maybe it needs to be said. I would caution you against that. I've been married for 18 years now. Bearing with one another in love presupposes something, that you need humility and gentleness and patience to bear with one another in love, presupposes something. What it presupposes is that sometimes loving people will feel like a burden. So buckle up and reset your expectations. There are no perfect people. I know that's news to some of you. Sometimes some of us are really, really hard to love. But when you know who you are in Christ, you do it anyway. Hear me out because I think this is probably the most prominent need in our world right now. If we are united together as Jesus' church by something that is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us, then it means we have already received the power to bear with one another in love. It's already yours. I've been talking about this for a while as the pandemic has stretched on and as there's wars and political unrest and social upheaval, people are getting worn out. You just need to set new expectations in your life with the knowledge that people are getting worn out and you need to ask the Spirit for new and fresh power to continue to love people. Here's what I've been saying. I've been saying this to the staff. I've been saying this to our elders. I've been saying this to anyone who will listen to me. Some of us started out with thick skin, right? What's happened is the last 18 months has worn us thin. So we are surrounded by thin-skinned people. In fact, we have become thin-skinned ourselves. Life is not easy. What used to be simple is now difficult. What you used to have capacity for, you no longer have capacity for. What you used to be able to accomplish, you're struggling to accomplish. Your patience, your gentleness, and your humility are worn thin, and you are having a hard time bearing with one another in love. 
so is everyone else. People are worn out. I'm worn out. You're worn out. We should just be honest about it. Reset some expectations. People are struggling. Show some grace. You don't know how transformative it may be. When you're talking to the barista and they screw up your order, don't bark at them like a servant. Bear with them in love. When you're frustrated with everyone and everything around you, perhaps the problem's here. It's so convicting to preach about myself all the time. I read a book this summer called I'm Surrounded by Idiots. It's a totally different context, but I just thought you liked the title. We're thin-skinned. We're worn out. You don't understand how important it is that your gentleness and patience and humility are all contributing to the way that you patiently and gently and humbly bear with one another in love. That can be transformative in your home and in your workplace and in whatever community you're in and certainly in this church. Sometimes people forget how loved they are until you love them. You might think, right, it's easy for you to say. How do I love someone I disagree with? Yeah, right, because everyone should have all of your opinions. I mean, the world would be simpler for me if that were true, but it's not. How do I love someone I disagree with? Well, the fact is, Christ and the unity by the Spirit is bigger than the issue, whatever issue it is. Let me say it like this. If the issue that's currently ripping apart your relationships is not going to matter in 10,000 years, then maybe ease up a bit. Let's love one another. You can be friends with someone you disagree with. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's possible. And you can certainly love people with whom you disagree. You can bear with one another in love, but you can only do so when you know who you already are in Christ. So what if in all humility and all gentleness, with all patience, we just spent the next season seeing who we can bear with in relationship, bearing with one another in love? What if, I mean, I come from a competitive household. I mean, I come from a competitive household. I've also spawned a competitive household. Okay, what if, what if just in our home, we just decided we're gonna outbear the other. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bear with you better than you can bear with me, and I'm going to win. Now, maybe it's a bad motivation, but it will get you there. I think it'd be a sweet time. The third thing in the text that I think we need to look at in terms of what we do is maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay? The unity of the Spirit is like the tie that binds us all together. There's only one Holy Spirit. And so you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Holy Spirit, but just so you know, there's only one Holy Spirit. We're knit together as a community by the Spirit. Let 
Our unity in Christ is infinitely stronger than anything that could ever divide us. But please hear me when I say that. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is boring. Unity in diversity is fun and beautiful. So when we all come filled with the Holy Spirit and you're confronted with someone who's different than you and has different ideas than you on secondary, tertiary, and everything else issues, can I just tell you, you can still love them. It's only one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not produce uniformity. The Holy Spirit produces unity in diversity. And that's what Paul's actually getting on about in Ephesians. He's saying because of who God is, what Christ has done, and the power of the Holy Spirit, this multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Ephesus, you actually united together as one, one body to church. His point is that it's not the superficial things that unite us together, it's the person and work of Christ. Like what if we only fellowshiped with one another as long as we agreed on all the superficial things? Okay, I'll tell you right now, if I wear my Oilers jersey on a Sunday morning, I might get booed out of this pulpit. But if I only hung out with Edmonton Oilers fans... I'll tell you, I'm going to wear that jersey when they win the Stanley Cup, and I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to just, it's going to be good. Canucks have never won one. (laughs) But what if that was the identifying factor of who my community was? It's a stupid illustration, but you know what I'm saying. We're united by something so much bigger than that. Uniformity is boring, but unity and diversity is beautiful, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The point, again, is that it's not the superficial things that unites us. We are united through the cross of Jesus. Through the cross of Jesus, his death upon the cross, we have been vertically reconciled to God. And because of the finality of that reconciliation and the new identity we have received in Christ, we can then set aside all of our differences and be brought together horizontally, reconciled horizontally and united to one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what the text is teaching us. And that's what it looks like to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if you want to know where that peace comes from, open up Ephesians chapter 2 and see that it's the peace that comes through Christ's blood as he dies in our place and for our sin upon the cross. This is where our peace comes from. We maintain unity in the bond of peace. It's Christ's peace on our behalf. Who we are, what we do, why it matters. Our oneness as a church comes through, as I said, the shed blood of Christ upon the cross. And because of this, we are all knit together as a new family by the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. And this is Jesus' prayer in John's gospel in chapter 17. Jesus prays this. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, all of them, may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You just listen to the prayer of Jesus. How many know Jesus' prayers get answered? Hmm? Listen to this. This is what he prays for you, for me. Jesus prays and he asks his father that we, that we today would be one just as he and the father are one. Jesus prays and he asks and he says that we would be in relationship with God in the same way he was in relationship with God. It's powerful. 
And then there's a so that in his prayer. Let's look at what he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity that we have in the midst of all of our fractured diversity has an end in mind. There is a goal in mind. And that end is that the world around us might know who Jesus is and why he was sent to save us. One God and Father, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one spirit, one body, the church, with one mission. With one mission. This is why it matters. In a world that's being ripped apart by people who are dividing and fracturing over everything. When families are not speaking to one another. When every issue, it seems, is getting elevated to the place of a hill to die on. You can't die on every hill. When every issue is elevated to a place where it seems like it's a hill to die on. We need to be mindful of what Jesus said. What Jesus said needs to be booming in our ears. It needs to be resounding in our hearts. Our unity in Christ means something, but it transcends us. It's actually missional. It's not just about us. The church is the only organization in the world who exists for those who are not yet its members. So our unity means something to the folks down the street who desperately need to know who God is. I think we live in a city full of people who are hungry to be connected to God. And they look at us and they go, look at that weird community of people from all over the place who believe all sorts of different things on secondary and tertiary issues of life. But man, they're all united together in one thing. I want to be a part of something like that. Can I tell you that the world around us is not as hostile as you've been led to think it is toward our faith? The world around us is hungry. I actually believe that most of the people in our city who look like they're not interested in God, it's not that they have already rejected the salvation that is offered to us in Christ. It's that they've never heard. And they're just waiting and they're observing and they see something that's going on in all of the churches in the city and they go, how are they still holding it together? It matters, not just for us. And this is what Jesus said in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he says in verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to know who we are so we know what to do, but we really need to know why it matters. And why it matters is because we have been given the good news of salvation, of the forgiveness that is offered to us for all of our sin. We've been knit together in a community and we'll be together forever. What a glorious set of good news to have. 